Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. All right. Well, uh, Pat and Lee, welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you along today. I'm talking to you from sunny Brisbane. I don't think, Pat, you're in Sydney. Where are you, Lee? Um, I'm in Tobal on the Central Coast, Richard. Oh, fantastic. What's well, uh, uh, sort of a nearby landmark? Have you got any of one of these sort of giant crabs or bananas or anything near there? There's a big dinosaur on the exit of the freeway, I think. That's about it. Ploddy, I believe his name is. Oh, fantastic. Ploddy the big dinosaur. Well, look, um, uh, thanks again. And today we're having a talk about Kookaburra Kids. And uh, But normally what I do at the beginning of a podcast uh, is uh, you know, really chat to each of you. And given that there's two of you today, we might just start with Pat. So, Pat, why don't you just sort of start off by sharing a little bit about your background and your involvement with Kookaburra Kids, please. So, and so, I mean, I, I'm English, actually, as is Lee, originally. Um, so both moved over here, but I came probably a bit before, so, but via Hong Kong. So I'm English, lived in, in England, uh, started work with EY there, transferred to Hong Kong, became a tax partner there, then moved into the commercial field as a CFO um, and then became a CEO after moving down to Australia um, and joined Kookaburra Kids seven years ago now mm -hmm. as chair. Um, Kookaburra Kids was a charity of choice at our corporate events for a while. And then I asked the CEO what the board renewal policy was and plan was. And the next thing I knew, I was being interviewed for a board role. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> then ended up becoming chair um, three years ago now, I think it is. Um, but I was asked yesterday, you know, what made me ask that question in the first instance? And it was simply meeting one of our kids at a take what we call a taking flight event. And I asked, and she's no longer a kid, given this is more than seven years ago now, but I asked her, what does Kookaburra Kids mean to her? And her feedback was just very plain and simple. I wouldn't be here without Kookaburra Kids. Fantastic. And uh, and not only are you chair of Kookaburra Kids, but you're sort of building out a portfolio career in some other areas as well. Correct. So I just, as I left, I sold actually the business I was CEO of, had to stay a year. Um, I've got another board role at a company called TELUS, as opposed to TALUS. Yep. A lot of people think it is TELUS, which has got geological repositories across the country for hazardous waste, mainly in Perth or WA at the moment, and I'm um, working on a few others. So I will transition fully into a board portfolio career. Which I think is how we got to know each other originally. It is. Excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. And Leah, how about you? Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, obviously born in England as well. Yeah, I was born in um, sunny Chesterfield in the UK, came out to Australia 22 years ago. Um, my background is I'm a mental health nurse by training. Um, I worked in inpatient, outpatient community and um, specialised in forensic mental health, which is where uh, mental illness intersects with the criminal justice system. Um, more recently, I'm um, become a senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales. So I um, lecture on the forensic mental health program there. 
and I also run a large clinical trial for uh, men who have got histories of violence to see if we can reduce their <clears throat> their violence. So that's kind of my quick background um, as far mm. as my career goes. With Kookaburra Kids, I became involved. My, my wife, um, Crosby, she wrote all of the chat material for the um, for the program. So that's about um, the psychoeducation or the mental health literacy, help-seeking behaviour things and all stuff like that. So she was involved before we got together. Um, when we when we started dating, um, I was obviously trying to impress her. So I thought I'd come along to uh, a Kookaburra Kids camp. And I, look, I was initially um, a leader on the camp and I really enjoyed it. Um, quickly, I became a clinician on the camp. So um, because of my background, I, I became one of the camp clinicians. Um, and then I can't remember how many years it's been, um, Pat, that I've been on the board. It's, it's a lot of years now. Um, but I started yeah. on the board as a, as a, a board director um, was in the Audit and Risk Committee um, for a few years. And then my skill set is more around um, clinical governance and less around um, numbers and figures. So I became the chair of the Clinical Governance and Operations Committee, and that's that's where I fit into the organisation. We've had him in ARC for the risk aspects. I was chair of ARC at the time, too. That's right, that's right. <laughs> I, I, I wondered how many people would look back in their careers and say, I went down this path because I was trying to impress a woman or a man. <laughs> I bet there'd be a lot, right? I think there'd be more than you think. Yeah, yeah right. definitely. And, and Lee, just going back a little bit, um, how did you sort of first get attracted to working in mental health per se? Now, what was it about that career that interested you? Yeah, look, it's, it's hard to say, really. I mean, I've always had an interest in kind of psychology and understanding people. I think... Um, Look, to be perfectly honest with you, my career started with my my dad, um, who has sadly passed away now, but my dad, he used to work at a high secure forensic psychiatric hospital in the UK. And I was doing computers at the time. And he got me a placement in um, in this hospital doing the IT. Um, I spent most of my time on the wards talking to patients. So this was around about the age of 17. Um, my mum's a very driven woman, and I mentioned that perhaps I might like to work in, in this high-secure forensic hospital one day. And within about a week and a half, she had got me an interview to do my psychiatric nurse training at the University of Nottingham. And uh, I, think I, was, I think I went on holiday and started it about two months later. So it was a, a little bit of an accidental um, career choice. And fortunately, I actually really love it, and I, I find it really rewarding, and it's, it's where I want to be. Uh, but I, I can't pretend it was well thought out and well planned. So what you're really saying, Lee, is that uh, largely your life has been dictated by the important women in your life. Oh, that... yeah, that's pro <laughs> probably right. Because it was all planned by them, I bet. Right. That's right. That's right. It's kind of interesting. I find when I talk to people, my parents both think this. My dad's passed away now. And my mum, at the end of her career, she was a psychiatric nurse. Um, yeah. And uh, when I was at uni... Uh, she got me a job as a theatre orderly, you know, uh, operating theatres in a hospital, which I did for four years. So, so there you go. So here we all are. We, you know, I, I was born in Canada, but to English parents, so all imports, and um, and now all sort of involved in this wonderful organisation called Kookaburra Kids. So, um, uh, I'm not sure who may be best. Perhaps you, Pat. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the the history of the organisation. Well, and Lee probably has been around longer than me, but we'd be I'll give you a brief overview and then Lee can dive in a little bit more to the camps and how that's progressed and our offering. But it's been going 20 years. This is our 20th year. Uh, we have had three CEOs through that period as we've grown. So Diane Madden was the original founder. 
Pam Brown was in the role for around 10 years um, and Chris Giles has now been in there for four. Um, and, you know, we are expanding throughout Australia. We are now in every capital city and we are expanding further out. In 2016, what's really helped us grow quickly has been a defence contract from the Defence Veterans Association. So that started in 2016 and has now rolled over three times, each time getting a lot larger. Okay. Uh, we've got 2,700 kids. I was told given a number of 3,000 yesterday, so we might be up to 3,000 kids on our books. But last time, and that was verbal, last time I saw it on a report, it was 2,000, just over 2,700. But the need in Australia, so 23% of kids live in a family impacted by mental illness across Australia. And our age range cohort is 8 to 18. So there's 2.8 million kids in that. 23% of that extrapolates to 644,000 kids in need of services that we have started calling internally pre-early intervention because it's about prevention and helping the kids early when they're in an at-risk in an, a more at-risk category. Okay. So kids who live in a family impacted by mental illness are three times more likely to develop a mental illness themselves. Mm. And and Lee, talk a bit about the range of services that you're providing to these uh uh, young Australians. Yeah, that, well, um, thanks, Pat, for that overview, and that, that's absolutely correct. So it started off as a very small organisation, <clears throat> pretty much um, based in South Sydney, I would say, and they, the initial idea was to kind of run, like, recreation and um, respite camps. So there was there was a few camps a year where the idea was that um, there was a need for kids that were impacted by um, family mental illness to, to go away with, with other like-minded um, kids and realise that they weren't alone and have that kind of connectedness i think was the the kind of main program aim and that's that still bears true to today that's that's still a very um, important aspect of the program um, but over the years it developed into this evidence-based um we called it psychoeducation back in the day but the, the new term um or the newer term is mental health literacy program so it's about teaching um our young people about mental illness so that they get factual correct information rather than stigmatized and incorrect information they understand that they're not alone. They understand um, that there's other people around that are going through something similar to them. But they also, more importantly, they know that, you know, their parents' mental illness is not their fault, for example. They learn some strategies to to deal with that. So that's when it steps into our help-seeking behaviours. So we, we teach them how to seek help at the right time from the right people. It's a really hard system to navigate the mental health system, unfortunately. Unless you know what you're doing, that you really can get blocked at very various steps along the way um so it's about that um, mental health literacy and help seeking education initially it was exclusively delivered in camps so the kids would come away on a friday night and they would stay with us for the whole weekend and then they'd go back home on sunday evening they'd do two what we call chat groups where they would get a book and they would go through um, various aspects which we try and make as interactive as possible so some kids don't like sitting around and learning like at school they like to throw a ball around or they like to um you know play a card game or they like to to sit and absorb the information so there's, there's a whole heap of ways that we deliver the the material um, and then so the saturday's really given over to the mental health literacy and the sunday's given over to the help seeking behaviors that that's how the, the program split up and in between that we do a lot of fun activities so we do things like 
giant swing, um, climbing walls, abseiling, go-karts. There's a whole heap of activities that these these camps have. So the kids have fun. They do chat group. They go and have some more fun. They learn that they've got people who are going through similar things to them and get that sense of connectedness. We also started um, then doing activity days, short activity days, where there was no mental health component. And we kind of just took them away somewhere for the day. So it might have been to... Um, bowling or laser quest or something like that and um, they'd just go away and have fun and that was to keep them connected with the organization so that they had that um, that point where they they came back and they they got to hang out with their friends again but there was no mental health literacy um, in that it was just about the the activity day to keep them connected over time the activity days have grown so we do short activity days which is exactly as i described with some very brief brief mental health literacy and then we do the longer days um, where they go and do a longer activity that's all day and they'll get some longer mental health literacy and mental health um, education in that in that time. During COVID, we, COVID brought lots of opportunities um, as well as lots and lots of problems and issues. Um, we used it as an opportunity to enhance our online delivery. And when I say enhance, I actually mean invent, design and yeah, implement. Exactly. <laughs> Um, that was designed by one of our um, clinicians, um, Amanda, and she helped design that. And that was to give kids initially that sense of connectedness whilst we couldn't get together. So we couldn't do camps, we couldn't do activity days, but we could meet online. Um, that's grown and it is kind of being retweaked re re as we speak at the moment. Um, and that's going to have some mental health literacy and some help seeking behaviour in it. But initially, its entire goal was that connectedness so that kids stay connected. Um, it's actually a great program because kids, um, particularly as Pat's spoken about, we've got defence um, force kids and they're often posted to different places around Australia or even around the world. And they can still come into their connect session, their online session, and still meet up with the kids that, they, that they've that they met and that they know. Um, so we're, we're really looking to enhance that program for our non-sponsored kids, which are our non-defence or non-first responder kids, and also for our, for our defence kids. So now we call it a stepped care package where kids can come in wherever they want. So they can dip their toe in the water and just do connect, or they can come and do an activity day, or if they're feeling really brave, they can come to a, a, a camp and do the whole weekend with us. And often you'll find that the kids like to dip their toe in a little bit and see what's good for them. And then they come to a camp with a little bit of apprehension and end up having an absolutely fabulous time and going away and taking some really important lessons home with them. Oh, and making excellent. friends in a similar situation. I sure. think this is one of the key things of the program yeah, is right. it allows the kids to not feel like they're on their own or, and, you know, thinking it's their fault that daddy is yelling at them or similar. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the training. And once they start to work through that and understand that piece, then they have friends in similar situations they can talk to. And, you know, it's it's almost like, and this is a really, it's, it's not an appropriate comparison, but it's why you have groups of people with AA. They all go right. together and sit around and talk to each other. It's similar to that in that, you know, the kids then form these close bonds and support networks. Yeah. That's right. I mean, and, and obviously, when I, when I say this, people are often quite shocked, but some of our kids, a larger number than what you would think, actually carry the burden of wondering whether they're going to come home and find their parent deceased by suicide. Mm -hmm. A lot of our kids carry that burden, and that is a huge burden to carry. It would be really hard to find somebody with a similar experience, let alone admit it and talk about it between mm -hmm. each other. But Kookaburra Kids allows them to realise, well, there are other kids that are going through something similar to me, mm -hmm. and how do, what did they use to, to cope with it? And obviously... 
we we then get the opportunity to to tweak that coping mechanism and tweak that that information um so that they're they're doing the best that they can in in those situations um, for for their own mental health and um to make sure that they don't carry that burden well there's quite a lot to unpack there uh so how does um how does a kid come to be connected to you are they seeking you out themselves is it is there some kind of intervention or uh or how how do you get on their radar Go on. We yeah, both opened our mouths there. Go on, Lee. You go first, then I'll go. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. So they can, look, they can be referred. So we, we we've got several different streams. So we've got the defence stream, and there's targeted. Um, I don't think the word's recruitment. I don't like that word. Um, there's targeted intake for for defence and our first responders. With the um, unsponsored children, they get referred by um, like maybe child and adolescent mental health teams. Um, school counsellors, family and community services. There tends to be a whole different range of ways that, that kids come to us. You you can just go on our website and um, refer a child who's in your life. Obviously, we ask that you refer a child with either your permission, if you're the parent or guardian, or ask mm. the parent or guardian. There would be nothing weirder than getting a phone call from us saying, by the way, we, we're going to yeah. see your kid for you. Uh, but yeah, there's a whole heap of ways that people can come into the programme. But we do. I think the most important thing, if people are listening, sorry, start that again. One of the most important things for people who are listening is that you can self-refer or you can refer yeah. your kids in via the website. We don't. We don't need to have that formal referral process. So I had a friend the other day come to me and asked about how to do that for her friend's daughter. Right. So and we just put her straight into the website and she's done a referral. You know, with to Lee's point, with her friend's permission. Right. And, and when you were talking about defense sponsoring the children, so, um, uh, in, in, in the relationship you have with them, they would have people who were, uh, defense force personnel, uh, that they've identified who've got some mental health challenges. And so they would then sponsor their children to participate in your program. Is that right? So, so it's a contracted um, service. So we're funded by Defence to provide um, programs to um, serving and ex-serving members of Defence. Right. And um, yeah, they're enc- they're encouraged. So that they can also self-refer. Um, in fact, many of them do. But um, yeah, there's there's a program specifically for Defence. And at the moment, we're doing some trials in um, first responders, and that's that's in its infancy kind of trial phase at the moment. But yeah, defence is um, essentially a, a contracted service that we offer to defence for defence kids. We we launched defence in Perth in between the two lockdowns for um, COVID. Because mm-hmm. uh, we had to delay it because of COVID first off. But we went over there, we had the assistant commissioner for Defence Veterans Association came to the launch. A lot of parents and kids came out. Um, and we also went out to the defence site. So the submarine base and the army base in Rockhampton. Okay. And so I was talking to a lot of the defence personnel there. And a lot of them said, look, we should all have our kids in this program because as serving members of the defence force, we go through so much stress all the time. Oh. So that's, you know, so and that's why the government has done this. And obviously, we've got the um, Royal Commission going on at the moment. We have made submissions to the um, Defence Royal Commission that's being reviewed. 
Um, apparently, we the feedback we received is that we were the only good news story going into this Royal Commission. So they took, Lee, I think you spoke to them, didn't you? Gave, we gave them lots of yep. papers. So, so we gave them lots of feedback. I think I, I think we I think we were to talk at one of the um, hearings. However, I think we sent them so much um, background material that they determined that that was sufficient. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, one of Pat's points is very important: is that we actually don't require a formal diagnosis of mental illness from the family member. So an acknowledgement that there's family stress, either from work or or something like that, that they're in stressful roles, that would be sufficient to meet the threshold. And I imagine during COVID that would have exacerbated the situation for these children because, you know, at least in a normal time, they would have been able to escape the home and go to school and have a bit of a break. And now they're, you know, at home 24 hours, you know, 24 seven with their parents, that made made it a much more challenging for them. I think, I think being locked down during COVID made it more challenging for everyone in general. So probably not just um, the kids being at home with, with, with their family members with the mental illness, but I think also it probably exacerbated a lot of people's uh, mental health issues. And it also likely created um, a lot of um, worsening mental health in, mm. in our population, which would, be, which would carry across whether they're in defence first responders or our unsponsored children. So I think the, the burden of mental illness during COVID and beyond has increased and made the need even more. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think that's probably my answer to that. So the prevalence of kids living in families with mental illness in defence is past 40%. If you look at that, it's a number above 40%. Um, in the general population, that 23%, some would be lower. But after COVID, and there hasn't been any up-to-date reports done on it yet, you would expect that to be going up higher. Right. So the need being a lot higher. Sure. All right, let's uh, talk uh, more about the organisation now. So 20 years, started in Sydney. You've now expanded out to, I think you said, every capital city in Australia. And so um, we're now, you know, almost at the end of 2022. Hopefully COVID's buying this largely. So what, what are the sort of exciting things that you're looking forward to, uh, either from a growth perspective or a broadening of services? etc. over the next coming years? Well, I was in a meeting talking about this with people yesterday, so I'll happily take that one. And by the end of this year, this financial year, we, the plan is to be up to 4,000 kids. Um, they will mainly be defence kids. So by that stage, we'd have 2,500 defence kids and 15, 1,600 what we call unsponsored kids. Because you couldn't, the way the organisation operates, effectively what we're doing with defence is a fee for, for service. Yep. But then we need other donations from other um, you know, corporates or sponsors or to support the kids that don't have a benefactor and don't have a sponsor group to fund them into you know, being able to get our services. The services are free for the kids, but we are always looking for donors to support the organisation. We haven't got to a stage yet where we do um, what the Smith family does, for example, where you've got this recurring, you know, sponsor mm -hmm. a child, pay X dollars per month. But that could be on the horizon for the mm -hmm. future. I don't see why we wouldn't look at it. We do need to make sure we're bedding down our expansion, though, because the defence expansion is quite high over mm -hmm. the next few years. So we've got a three-year contract. Um, and I think we go up throughout this period, we'd have about five to 6,000 kids. And that's actually a lot of looking after with the mm. kids in particular. 
Um, but we also need volunteers for that. So we operate on a ratio of nearly 10 to 1 volunteers. So Lee would be a volunteer going to the camp. Seed was up being the clinician on a camp in Townsville the other day. Um, but that takes a lot of organisation as well. So we yeah. try and make our um, donors' money go as far as possible by utilising volunteers, but it is becoming harder to find the quantity of volunteers. So we will need to look at how we develop that program as we move forward. So there's some good strategic challenges coming with the growth, mm -hmm. which is quite exciting. But also the day yesterday was spent with the BD team. We've just done a restructure. So we've put the a new role in for the head of commercial and finance together. So we're looking at, you know, how are we really going to drive the revenue coming through the books to spend more on the kids. And that's really the goal is to make sure as many kids as possible can go through our programs, but go through them regularly enough for them to be really beneficial for them. And that all takes funding. So it's, and really we need recurring funding because one-off donations, it's all very well providing something for the kids for one time, but the benefit really comes from that repeat attendance over years and over their formative years. Mm. So really the, the funding and finding stable, sustainable, you know, multi-year funding is a big challenge for us, as with most charities. Sure. But we're looking at various strategies now. We will talk to other government agencies as well. We've got more BD team members now all over the country. So we've only just hired someone in Perth. Um, we've reallocated someone's role in Queensland. She's great. I mean, both those people are great and will do a great job. And we're about to hire someone in Victoria as well to really drive that funding in those areas. And Lee, so, and so lots of challenges. Sorry. I was going to say, you know, as a volunteer, Lee, obviously you're very well qualified in this space professionally. Uh, but are most of your volunteers equally qualified or? Are there people who want to come and, and help out at the camp suit don't necessarily have a professional background in the area? Yeah, no, pretty much the majority of our volunteers would not have a clinical background. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so we, we, we've got um, volunteers who are cops, who um, work in marketing, um, right. all called different ranges of, of backgrounds. And, and, and that's the beauty of it. I think they, what they really like is the... Um, kind of fundamentals of um, Cookaboa Kids is that making a difference in the in the lives of these kids. And I think that's what really drives them. Um, some people are there um, because that's that's their main goal and their main motivation. Obviously, they get some benefit out of being surrounded by um, people who have got um, mental health experience and can provide them with some kind of um, leadership and, you know, some brief education. We do training, so we do train our volunteers. Mm -hmm. so they get the opportunity to become more mental health literate in their own in their own jobs, which is really, really useful, I think. I think it's very important that all of our, you know, corporates and um, government departments have got mental health literacy so they know how to help others but also help themselves and know where they can get that help and advice from. So I think there's some motivation behind that. But the short answer to your question is no, it's not just clinicians. In fact, we actually probably have very few clinicians, hence why I jumped on a plane and flew up to Townsville the other weekend because I was the only clinician available to, to do that. So we, we do need more clinicians, um, but certainly our volunteers are from all walks of life. Right. And, and it's probably worth adding, Richard, to that, if I may, that some of our volunteers are actually ex-Cookaburra kids. Right, right. that's right. Right. And then some, and we've got a few that have become, well, it started as Kookaburra kids themselves, then became volunteers. And we've got a couple on staff 
now. So, okay, sure. Well, I'd love to see uh, how I can help you in getting more volunteers because obviously I've got a massive uh, database and access to oh, lots of yes. very professional people. And I think it's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, a lot of people would love to, um, uh, to be involved in. And then from a sponsorship point of view, uh, you're talking about your BD team and so on. So it's the energy being put into, you know, mum and dad sponsors, you know, you, uh, for example, I donate monthly to the Martyr Mothers and to Red Cross and a couple of others. Have you got those kind of programs set up yet? We did a few, and we um, we continued that two, three years ago. I would like to get back into that. Mm. I'm obviously conscious of not overloading the staff at the moment too. But, yes, Richard, I think we will get back to something like that and do it well, um, and um, that in itself should provide us more sustainable long-term funding. Great. And in terms of from our, uh, you know, looking at other organisations like Defence, um, obviously there's a it, from you saying, you know, 40% of the kids, you know, are dealing with parents that might have a mental health uh, uh, challenge. Uh, are there other particular sectors of um, the population or industries uh, that are equally um, viable as a, a main client of yours? Well, first responders are uh, an obvious one there. And we, we are talking to um, police, various police departments around mm-hmm. the country, we're running a trial at the moment up in Queensland, actually, for okay. um, Queensland police. We're also talking to the federal police. So we're talking to all the various police departments, border force, the timing's not right for them, but they've said come back in a year or two. So all of those, you know, the fireys, mm-hmm. we haven't got there yet. So, I mm-hmm. mean, this is why, you know, we're beefing up the team. to get. But there, there's a lot, there's more opportunity than we would like to see, to be honest, right? You'd prefer it wasn't there, but... There is a lot, but the challenge is though getting people to understand the service really and it's understand the early and it's pre-early intervention. So if you look at where government funding goes, only 1% of it goes on preventative funding or funding for preventative services Mm -hmm. in the mental health space. And then I heard someone say yesterday that they weren't sure even that got to the kids. Right. So, so So there is a longer term challenge for the organization us and others to get that changed over time and have the governments focusing on preventative rather than you know reacting to someone with an illness and treating it there's studies out there that show and as you what was really good with the bd team yesterday they were quoting this back at me yesterday which was great but there there are studies showing that for every dollar you spend up front it saves you 7.9 dollars down the line in treating a mental illness. Mm-hmm. So the economics stack up, but it's just really getting that across to governments and governments to buy into it. And if you look at defence at the moment, they've got so many challenges. They have, to their credit, taken this on and run with it and you know, have now renewed three times, which is great. With the police, there's sensitivity to having kids mixed from kids from the community. So we would have to run specific programmes for them, as we do with defence. Um, but I think there's a bit more sensitivity in the police force with the parent admitting they may have challenges. Right. And that's some of the challenge we work with. The stigmatism there, they, while they talk about it, when you actually come to um, execute, there are some challenges coming through with, you know, can you change this because we're worried about people might think we've got a mental illness if we do that. And we're really all about mm. being more open about mental illness and helping people with that rather than stigmatising it. 
Mm. Anything to add on that, Lee? I know you've been yeah. close to that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, one of one of our main jobs is to um, speak about mental illness without any kind of stigma or um, prejudice. And I think that's really important. It's also really important that we look at how do we change the societal perception of, of people who've got mental health issues. As Pat said, the particularly the police, they're very sensitive to um, admitting to having issues with their mental health. And that, that really comes down to their fear of being unable to work if if they're diagnosed or seen to be suffering from mental ill health. So I think it's about helping to change that landscape so that mm. we're more we're more able to speak about this openly. And we're, we're starting that with with what we are calling our pre-early intervention is, is kind of speaking to the kids about this and so that they're not afraid of getting help and they know where to get help. What one of the most important things in your kind of mental health journey is how your first interaction with a mental health team or mental health professional goes. So if that goes badly, you're less likely to engage with mental health services in the future. Mm. So we, re we really want to be, whilst we're not treating mental illness and we're not treating mental health, we are this pre-early intervention service and we're giving the kids a really positive starting point for if they do develop their own mental health issues, they've got a real um, positive and supportive environment which they entered into it in. And that, that's really important. Um, I think just on the groups, there's lots and lots of need in defence, in first responders. There's lots of jobs, I think, that people would describe as being stressful um, that, that could take more investigation. Um, but we, with the unsponsored kids, you know, twenty about 25% of kids living in a family affected by mental illness, that's a huge amount of Australians that, that you know, on our current trajectory, we're, we're not going to get close to servicing all the kids that might benefit from our programme. So we, we really we really need to kind of promote that as well. So I think that that's my my position. Um, from a volunteer perspective, there's nothing more rewarding than doing these camps. So it's really really um, rewarding for a volunteer. You, you can like the kids, you can dip your toe in at any point. You can do connect, you can do an activity day, or you can come away to camp. Mm. You'll never be so tired in all your life as you have been after uh, a camp, but you'll also be really rewarded. And I, I always tell a couple of stories, but. Two that stick out to me is one of the kids who has been through the entire program. He's not a kid anymore. He's got a really, really good job. He did a really difficult university degree. And he will tell you that during his childhood, at some of his darkest moments, he got the chat group book from Cookaburra Kids, which he kept under his bed. And he referred to it and he used that book to, to help him through the difficult times to where he could seek help. And he really attributes Cookaburra Kids to, to really... I don't think he attributes it to saving his life. It's not as dramatic as that, but he does attribute it to helping him cope mm. during during those years. Um, another another Cookaburra kid who I met when she was about eight years old, she's been through the program and um, she actually did work experience with me a, a year ago. And it was really nice to see that growth that she came through the, yeah. the, the um, program and then came out the other end and got to do work experience with me, which was really, really nice to watch. So it's really rewarding like that. Mm. And from a sponsor's perspective, if you can sponsor a kid through this program, if, if you just give a one-off donation, then you're allowing you're allowing us to perhaps put that kid on one camp and perhaps have one one interaction. But we're not able to do that growth that we need to do in order to service more kids, in order to put the staff on and attract the volunteers in order to do it. So if there's some kind of ongoing sponsorship where you can see the, a kid or several kids through the start to the finish as a as a sponsoring organization that's hugely rewarding and like pat says for every dollar you invest 
you save about eight dollars um, down the track, which which is fabulous. And Cookabo Kids, because of our volunteer led um, program, every dollar that you invest is actually magnified as well. And I, I don't think we have a metric on it, but every dollar that's invested, we right. use that dollar to provide services, and then we kind of amplify that with our volunteers so maybe every dollar you donate you get five dollars worth of service for mm-hmm. if you use a one to ten ratio yeah you know, from that that's um we know that from a numbers of people um but we do have quite a high ratio of kids to um to volunteer to adults shall we say uh or young people young people as we call them young people to adults on camps from a safety perspective so we need more from that angle when I I used to run a camp when I was um, sixteen, between going you know and school holidays, it was me and thirty kids. You'd right. never do that now. Right? You'd never do that now. Right? Well, I, I, there's so much there. I, you know, we could talk about this for hours. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'm a trained psychotherapist, and uh, uh, because I do a lot of coaching in, in my job, and I think you know, as the uh, uh, mental health um, issues get destigmatized. It's a little bit like, you know, somebody said to me once, you know, if you went to work and you had a broken leg and your, you know, your leg was in plaster, well, no, nobody would think about it. They'd say, oh, well, Richard's broken his leg. But if you go and you say, I'm depressed, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, being treated for depression. Well, it's, it's just, what's the difference, right? right? Mm-hmm. But, um, and I, I do believe that it is, uh, through obviously much more awareness and people being much more vulnerable and talking about their, situ- their personal situations, it is destigmatizing. But at the end of the day, you know, if 25% of children are living in a family that is dealing with mental health, you know, that's, that's a societal, like, what are we doing as a society really? Is it? And that's, I mean, you guys can't solve that, but, uh, you know, I, I, I know. And, uh, I mean, even, you know, sitting on a board, well, that's bloody stressful, isn't it? But so, uh, uh, you know, with all the risk and the governance and all that kind of stuff, you know, life just seems to be much more stressful for all of us now. And, uh, so it sounds like you're doing great work. I'd love to see how I can support you. Um, and, uh, obviously we can talk about that, uh, offline, but, but before we wrap up the podcast, is there anything, you know, you'd like to add finally, um, to sort of close out the conversation? worth Lee touching on the efficacy work we're doing and the third party reports on our program because that really differentiates us I think from a lot of other charities Lee yeah no yeah definitely I can definitely go there one one thing I did want to say Richard is about your broken leg analogy which I do like (laughs) um you you wouldn't think twice about someone in your office with their leg in a plaster cast because they'd fractured their leg but imagine if that same person knew that they'd fractured their leg and knew that there was a treatment that might help them, but didn't feel that they could go and get their leg put in a plaster cast for fear of people talking about them or treating them differently or them being prejudiced against. Mm-hmm. So instead of um, getting that help, they then decide that the only way to do it is kind of suffer, suffer through it and try and do the job as if they didn't have a broken leg without mm. any supports around it. Um, so I think that that's it, that, that important that analogy is great, and it's also if we expand on it, that that's essentially what's happening with people who suffer from a mental illness is they probably know there's help out there, but actually going and asking for help is really really difficult. So they suffer through and they struggle, and in spite of their mental health issues, they go about their day to day business, and mm-hmm. that, that's the impact that that we can't see as as members of the public. So I think that's an important uh, thing to remember. What Pat said about the efficacy, it's really important. It's really important to deliver evidence-based practice, particularly in um, in medicine and health um, and in mental health um, 
field. So it's really important that we're evidence-based. So we are um, doing our own research at the moment, which is looking at mental health literacy improvements in our kids who have been through camp. So really, there's not a lot like this around the world, believe it or not. This is reasonably um, unique and novel. So we're doing our own research to see if before kids come to camp and after they come to camp, what is their mental health literacy like? And what are their help-seeking behaviours like? And we've got some really, really exciting statistics that show that generally kids' mental health literacy significantly improves after they've been on one of our camps. So they know more about mental illness. They're less likely to believe stigma um, statements and things like that. And also they're more likely to seek help. So I think it's broken down into to two different distinct groups. And off the top of my head, I can't quite remember the, the full outcomes. But I think our kids are more likely to have a conversation with their parents at home about mental illness and mental health. And they're more likely to access a telephone helpline such as um, the kids helpline or something like that if they need to if they need to get that extra little bit of help. So it's really good because what we what we've proven or what we're proving is our kids are more likely to speak about it at home, which is really important. And they're likely or more likely to seek help through a through an online or telephone helpline. Um, after they've been on one of our programs and that's really exciting research and it's it's kind of new and novel and we're gonna we're gonna build on that whilst i say it's in-house um research most people will roll their eyes thinking that it's inherently biased mm -hmm. it's not the way we get around that is we have our research published in peer-reviewed journals so it has to go through a rigorous peer review and also we do have um some external um research that's done by people who aren't affiliated with kookaburra kids as well so um that's been borne out in that research which is really exciting oh that's excellent the goal is obviously to take that take it to other government bodies and other funders and use that to help us get funding for the proactive pre preventative treatments that we you know provide for the kids yeah excellent well, I wish you all the best in your endeavours. I look forward to seeing how I can support you whatever way we can. And uh, I really appreciate your time today. So uh, thanks very much, Lee. Thanks, Pat. And have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you very much. And we'll take you up on that offer for sure. Okay, good stuff. <laughs> thanks, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Arate Podcast with Richard Trinks. We frequently feature guests from organisations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organisation's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email richard t at The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.